Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Unscrewed. The show that knows that real liberation includes sexual liberation. I am your host, Jacqueline Friedman, and I am so happy to be back from a hiatus. You know, it's like vacation, like you're happy to go on vacation, and then if you have the right amount of vacation, you're actually like happy to come back to your life. And that's that's where I am right now, gentle listeners. I am happy to be back and unscrewing shit with you once again. And to celebrate, I have arranged for you the most delightful of guests. I have with me one Sadie Doyle. The brilliant writer and general feminist shitster. You've seen her writing like everywhere. Sadie, where have you been published? I'm nomadic. I wander the internet, but I'm often at In These Times. I've been there for several years. I've been at Rookie. I've been on the All a few times. I'm at QZ a lot these days. All over. And you're coming to talk about your brand new book, uh, which is called Trainwreck, The Women We Love to Hate, Mock, and Fear and why. Uh, and it is, by the way, fantastic. So thank you and congratulations. Oh, gosh, thank you. I'm I'm really glad that you enjoy it. It's a very weird book. At some point, I realized that I was going to compare Paris Hilton to Mary Wollstonecraft, like somewhere within the first 20 pages. So I was like, well, it just really needs to be a good 20 pages because they'll set it down once they reach that part. <laughs> no, that's the <laughs> part where I was like, okay, now we're happening. <laughs> but before we talk about it, it is tradition here at Unscrewed to put you through your paces with a little lightning round of questions at the top of the show. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. So what's made you the happiest this week? I'm going to sound very self-serving, but it really was just the fact that the book is actually out now. And I'm not, I, I don't have to worry anymore if I screwed it up. It's already out there and I cannot change it at this point. Oh my God, that's not self-serving. I know what that feels like. What is the best sex advice you ever received? No matter who you are and no matter what you want, there's someone out there that wants that same thing. So don't be so embarrassed and just be really clear about what you're into. That is awesome advice. What's the sexuality-related news that's made you the maddest or saddest this week? I have to say that I'm not really looking forward to relitigating the Brad, Angelina, Jen uh, stuff. There's so much in terms of, like, is Angelina crazy and slutty? Is Jennifer sad and barren? Are we going to have to go through the whole dynamics of sorting out heterosexual marriage and heteronormativity through these three people again? I don't want to. Yeah, I saw it and I was like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
What's the biggest sex myth that you once believed, but you don't believe anymore? I think it was the idea that there was one right way to do sex. And moreover, because I mostly, you know, I date guys. So um, it was that men knew the right way to sex and they would never tell you how to do it. You just had to sort of do it. Like it was like a talent recital. You were on American Idol every time you got in bed with somebody. And like you were fucking Simon Cowell. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> I mean, that's like, it's a terrifying experience if you consider that going on in your head all the time. That is but, very scary. <laughs> yes. Now I've learned that everybody is sort of goofy and vulnerable when they're having sex. And if you just talk about it, that really takes a lot of the pressure off. And that there's no one right way to do it. Everybody's a weirdo. Finally, who's one of the bravest people you can think of who's working to unscrew the sexual culture in some way? Well, I mean, I think that my person is not just one person, it's many people. I'm really impressed with all the campus activism that goes on now around consent and around affirmative consent and around ending rape culture. And I'm impressed that young women keep doing this and keep insisting on this, even though there's so much like campus activism shaming and PC shaming. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm happy for them and I'm glad that they're out there. I didn't have as much as much willpower at that age. Yeah. No, it's amazing. And it's making a real difference. So let's talk about Trainwreck. Why don't you start at the beginning? Why did you start writing this book? I have always been sort of fascinated with how we use the media to sort of create myths. When we're fascinated in someone's personal life, it's not just about them, although it is about them, and we can forget that they're human and become very cruel, but it's a way that we can sort of litigate broader questions and tell stories that our culture needs to believe, whether that's the good girl gone bad, or whether that's how we litigate, again, with um, with Jennifer Aniston and her eternal barren womb that's, you know, supposedly pregnant at least once every couple of years, and that will finally bring peace to her tortured soul. Yes, I'm sure she's wiping her tears with 20s. <laughs> I mean, if you're Jennifer Aniston, you know, like you're beautiful, you get to hang out with Justin Theroux all the time, you have a pile of money, you have that friend's money. And you have Courtney, you have actual friends too. I mean, I think she and Courtney Cox are like still besties. Oh my God. So they're just like living in fan fiction at this point. Yeah. But we've been, we've been told that this woman has a very empty, sad life. And that's mostly, it has very little to do with the facts of her life. And it has a lot more to do with what we need to believe a good woman is and what we need to believe a woman's fulfillment looks like. So I really started to wonder if by digging into the specific women we've shamed most, the women that we really just painted as utter monsters. Name names. Mm, I mean, I think Britney Spears is kind of central. Britney's in like every chapter of this book because she was really painted as absolutely monstrous. Her body was picked apart endlessly for its flaws. Her sex life was constantly discussed and debated. Even when she got married, there was a lot of classist stuff around whether she looked like a rich white married woman ought to look like or whether she looked like quote unquote white trash. Her mental health, obviously, she was like constantly surveilled for the signs that she was falling apart or going crazy. I think there are other women like that. I think Paris Hilton is someone that People have talked to me about this book and they've said that they're sort of shocked that they wind up feeling for Paris Hilton 
I didn't know until I read your book that she claims that not only was this tape of her leaked without her consent, but that the sex itself was not consensual, that it was rape. Right. It went completely missing from the narrative. She says that she was nearly unconscious in that tape and that she was forced to have sex when she really was not in a position to give consent. That was never central to the narrative. No, I had no idea. Yeah. We had gotten so used to disliking her by that point that the idea of her as this, to quote South Park, which I try not to do, as a stupid spoiled whore, because they did release an entire episode calling her a stupid spoiled whore, and she was apparently constantly coughing up semen throughout the episode. The idea of her being promiscuous and awful was so embedded that the fact that she was potentially not in a position to give consent, the fact that she certainly didn't give consent for that tape to be bought and sold, I mean, I remember in the early 2000s, there were feminist sex stores that sold that tape. Babeland sold it. You know, it just wasn't talked about because we weren't able to see her as human or vulnerable in that way. Well, and that, I mean, even the idea that promiscuity means you're awful, right? Right. Which is a lot of what, you know, you talk about that a lot in the book, but that, you know, promiscuous and awful sort of runs off the tongue as though those are related ideas. Yeah. Sex and sexual desire is seen as a moral failing, or or more specifically, it's seen as a way that a woman can be quote unquote out of control, because we have a very specific idea of what women's sexuality is or should be. A woman's moral role in life, because men supposedly want sex all the time, is to withhold sex strategically and only give it in ways that are good and helpful to creating heteronormative families. So when a woman has desire and it exists on its own terms, or even when a woman presents herself in a way that seems like she's inviting the desire of others, we tend to assume some deeper moral failing is at hand and potentially not even really in control of herself because what woman in her right mind would go around having fun sex and so on and so forth. (laughs) Yes, why would you do that? Yeah. Uh, What could she possibly be getting out of this? So, yeah. We assume total right of access to her body, and we assume total right to hate her, to judge her, to see her as a monster, because she had not done enough to prevent us from seeing her body. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's just like another level of victim blaming. I think the Brittany and Miley stories are so parallel in this sense, and especially in the way, and you talk about this in the book, both of them started off at Disney, Right. And both of them started off basically as not literal Disney princesses, but as avatars of pure girlhood, that kind of idea that Disney wants to sell. And we started seeing them as sexualized when they started to act out, quote unquote, sexually. Mm -hmm. But it becomes invisible that they were actually sexualized long before they started to appear sexual in the public eye because their sexuality um, and what they did and didn't do, whether they were good girls or not, was made part of their identity by Disney, like long before, you know, Miley posed for Vanity Fair. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important that Miley Cyrus doesn't identify as a woman, that Miley Cyrus is genderqueer. But she was definitely seen as a woman throughout her teenage years before she came out. And The way people surveilled her body, you know, the more I got into this, the more it creeped me out. Miley Cyrus had some non-consensual exposure, and it happened very young. 
somebody, a hacker who called himself Trainwreck, his name is uh, Josh Hawley, I believe, he stole pictures of her in a wet t-shirt that she had taken when she was 14. She got upskirted, which, you know, was this very strange media fad of just like trying to look up celebrity skirts, just checking to see if they had underwear on, and some didn't. And uh, Miley Cyrus got upskirted when she was underage. It's strange to me that now that she's in her 20s, she's doing her dirty dancing moves and she's showing up naked in magazines and we're alarmed and appalled and horrified and we want to talk about how good and sweet and pure she used to be. But she almost never had the choice. She never had that level of control over her own body. She was almost pathologically inspected for signs of her becoming sexual and for signs of sexuality. And that meant that a lot of stuff was taken and posted and made public without her consent. Right. And it's that fetishization of non-consent that doesn't actually get exposed usually, right? Because now she's, you know, walking around in all kinds of sexy and scandalous outfits and doing things that seem sexy and scandalous. And people are like, avert your eyes. What a mess. It's only when we want to think that she doesn't want it that the culture is titillated. And that's, it's so fucked up. It's just deeply fucked up. And it's a very strange thing because, I mean, if you remember in the uh, in the late 2000s when she was starting to get older, almost this fever around seeing whether she was impermissibly sexual, people interpreted almost everything she did as sexual, whether it was or whether it wasn't. The poll, yes. Yeah, she stood on top of an ice cream cart and there were these op-eds that are like, why is Miley Cyrus pole dancing? Like, well, they can't steer an ice cream cart across <laughs> the stage without her falling off. <laughs> also, dancing while holding onto a pole is not pole dancing. Yeah, it was the laziest pole dance ever. She was just hanging off to one side <laughs> with a microphone in her hand. Well, and I even felt like there was a, a spread she did for Elle early on where she was posing with these thigh-high boots sort of splayed out on a table and everyone sort of clutched their pearls about it. And, I, you know, I thought about, she was 17 when she did the shoot. And I thought about like when I was 17, if somebody had given me the chance to have that wardrobe available and the lighting and the photographer, right? Like I would have posed the shit out of that. Like the idea that that's either being imposed on her, that she was being sexualized by her handlers Or that, like, she was acting out in some ways. Like, it seemed, like, very 17 to me. Yeah. When I was 18, I had this terrible pair of boots, and I don't know why I had them. I wore them once. And they were, like, these black goth sci-highs. And if anybody finds a picture of me in these boots, I'll definitely never leave the house again. But that's just part of being who you are when you're in your teens and 20s, you really are just throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks. You're internalizing whatever weird images of sex you've gotten from the culture, and you might try a few of them out. That doesn't mean we have the right as adults to exploit you, but it should also mean that we as adults don't have the right to chase you down the street and shame you and make you feel awful about yourself. Right. I mean, one might have hoped that she had adults in her life that might have said, hey, that's cool, but you might want to think about doing more of this in private before you take it public just so you feel more sure about it because you are Miley Cyrus and it's going to have all these implications. It might be tough, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I I certainly hope she got that guidance behind the scenes. But the fact that she was feeling herself like in that particular way, that we acted like it required some sort of smelling salts. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You know, I think about the time I went on CNN to defend... TikTok Kesha song. <laughs> yeah. And like yeah. the CNN host was like, oh my God, she's encouraging everybody to like go out and women to go out and party. And isn't it like making women at risk and all this stuff? And like if you look at those lyrics to TikTok, they include like, we're going to kick the guys to the curb if they get too handsy, right? Like mm-hmm. it's actually very like she has boundaries, she knows what she's about. But just because she's being sort of sexual, it really is, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what else is being said. Like that one narrative, the fact that she's brushing her teeth with a bottle of Jack was the only thing anybody heard. Yeah, that's a way that we, again, put women in this position where they have to be these almost superhuman emblems of purity and good. They have to be held not just to a high moral standard, but to a higher moral standard than men. TikTok is a really goofy party song like when I look at that video for TikTok I think of like we're not gonna take it by Twisted Sister like oh shocking the parents and messing the house up or like fight for your right to party it's really (laughs) it's on that level like when you're like and I brush my teeth with bourbon to feel like a rock star like you know okay this is just like a doofy party song and she is she's kicking guys to the curb it's really just about how Kesha is going to get super drunk and show up at your party and there will be glitter everywhere. Which that sounds like a fucking good time to me for yeah. the record, Kesha, if you're listening. <laughs> Who doesn't want Kesha to come by? And glitter you know? up your party. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Talk to me about Mary Wollstonecraft. Yes. Straight from Kesha to Mary Wollstonecraft. This is now we're in my wheelhouse. Mary Wollstonecraft is interesting to me because she was always pitched to me as almost a very boring figure. I knew her as a proto-feminist. I knew her as a, as a founding figure. Depending on the definition you use, Vindication of the Rights of Woman is probably the first feminist text in English. It's very hard to see her as shocking or interesting because she's like, and another thing, what if we let ladies be doctors? You know, like, what if women could vote? We've adopted all of these ideas now. So she's not someone who grabs a lot of attention in your woman's studies class. But she was, for her day, kind of shockingly radical. And she was specifically sexually radical. She uh, did not believe in marriage. She kind of said nice things about it in her feminist texts so that people would take her seriously. But she had two relationships before she was married. One was kind of like a brief, awful situation where she fell for a guy 
while he was getting married and she showed up at his house and asked his wife for permission to move in. Like she just thought, well, maybe he could date both of us. That did not turn out well for her. (laughs) (laughs) So then later she had one that I, I hesitate to say that it went better, but she didn't move in with a man named Gilbert Imlay. She had gone to France to cover the French Revolution because that was an exciting place to be if you were a radical and if you believed in democracy. And it was the idea that maybe, again, this is one of those like, what if women could vote things, but maybe you could have a relationship that was as serious or more serious than marriage without necessarily having that subject to the state or to the church. It went well. She had a daughter and then it abruptly went less well because he abandoned her. She took a dark turn You know, she'd had trauma in her life. Her father had been violently abusive toward her mother. She had always had sort of a strain of melancholy running through her life. But with this and with the stress of raising a newborn in a war zone, it took over. And her letters from this period are very dark and they're very scary. And she did try to kill herself twice. This is not something that even a lot of her friends knew about. She was a really well-respected thinker in her day in a way that would shock us. You know, if you think about an an 18th century feminist, you expect her to be met with total derision, but she wasn't. You know, like John and Abigail Adams read her work. Aaron Burr thought she was a hero. He had a portrait of her and tried to educate his daughters in line with her theories. She did recover. She fell in love with yet another man, um, and this man she actually did marry. She was very optimistic in love. I know. (laughs) William Godwin had been an old friend of hers. They got married when she became pregnant again, and she died in childbirth. They'd only been married for about six months. But when she died, William Godwin, bless his heart, because no one else will, decided that the world really needed to know who this woman was and how wonderful she was. And so he published every letter she'd ever written that he could get his hands on. And that included letters about having sex with a man before marriage. And that included her suicide notes. He published a biography so that we could put all of this in context. And he told everyone that she had an illegitimate child and that she had lived with a man before marriage. If you can imagine the kind of gift this was to the right-wing press. Well, I think what's so fascinating to me in reading that story in your book was it literally set back feminist progress. It caused all kinds of people to distance themselves from her ideas because they were like, well, this is the kind of woman who espouses these ideas. These ideas are clearly bankrupt. Obviously, there were right-wing publications calling her a prostitute or I think usurping bitch was one of the real zingers. But even magazines she'd worked for had to sort of politely say, well, it, it may be true that her experience is the best proof against her theories. Women, feminist women, had to distance themselves from her. Harriet Martineau, who was, you know, one of the very few to keep on slogging ahead, had to do it at the expense of telling people, look, we're not all like Mary Wollstonecraft. This is not a movement for unhappy women. And in fact, I think if you're just unhappy in your relationships, you should stay out of feminism. It's not for you. Well, and I think that tracks in a modern sense as well. I mean, women are almost always participating in the creation and shaming of train wreck narratives. Yeah. 
it's a game we play of distancing ourselves from the women who have been caught out doing femininity wrong in order to feel like we're doing it right. There's so much pressure on all of us. And one of the easiest ways to to affirm that you care about what people think of be, about you, you care about being the right kind of woman, you care about not being terrible, is to find a woman who actually is breaking the rules and say, well, look over there. You know, it's like we're we're encouraging men to grade us on a curve, you know? Yes. I'm not Mother Teresa, but I'm not Amy Winehouse either, so, you know. Can I ask you a question about race? Yeah. Okay. So I haven't finished the book, Confession. I just got it a couple of days ago. But it seems to me that the majority of the examples of train wrecks are white women. Is that true? I wouldn't say that that's uh, necessarily true. I think that um, when I'm looking back in the 18th and 19th century, and this was a point of frustration for me, I really wanted to find women who had left behind their own story and their own words so that I wasn't projecting on them so that their voices could be part of the book. And when you look at at who had the, the leisure and the funding and the privilege to make themselves heard. It was very hard for women to make themselves heard, but if you were going to get that treatment, you were almost certainly going to be white and middle class. You know, women of color and poorer women had a much higher barrier of access. Sure. I do think that there's an angle to how we train wreck shame people. I mean, if you look at how we treat, let's say, um, Amy Winehouse versus how we treated um, Whitney Houston. Those were two women who had painful relationships, abusive relationships. Those were two women who had substance abuse issues, and they were two women we hated. But um, Amy Winehouse was always sort of portrayed often as like this frail thing who was falling apart. Whereas with Whitney Houston, people sort of used their anger at her to be dismissive not only of her, but of other black women. They sort of tried to stereotype her as, I think Bill O'Reilly called Whitney Houston just another crackhead. And whereas Amy Winehouse's frailty and suffering and addiction were really front page news right up until the end of her life, um, Rebecca Traster has written about how at the end of Whitney Houston's life, certainly we made a spectacle out of it. We made a reality show out of it. That Diane Sawyer interview was infamous, but towards the end of Whitney Houston's life, there would still be evidence that she was struggling with her addiction, that she was not, you know, that she had fallen off the wagon, that she was in trouble, that she might be dying, but it almost got ignored. Right. I was sort of wondering whether it has to do with the fact that we don't culturally, the cultural we, right, (laughs) doesn't, we don't expect women of color to live up to standards of womanhood or femininity to begin with. Yeah. So th- there's less far to fall, right? So the dynamics are really happens. different. You know, you still see like somebody like Beyonce or it happens to Nicki Minaj that they are, no matter how much they accomplish, reduced to their bodies or their sexuality. But if the train wreck is about someone failing to live up to a feminine ideal, we have to consider that so many of those ideals are constructed around white femininity specifically. So it almost makes a little bit of a better show if you can find, you know, a virginal white blonde teenager and make her into the monster because there's more of a shock factor. 
Nicki Minaj could just give a series of lectures at Columbia and the headline would be Nicki Minaj's butt looks great in a classroom, you know? Like <laughs> I mean, and God bless, she has a great butt. There's a lot more to Nicki Minaj than that. As there are, is to literally everyone. To literally, like, all of us are more than our butts, you know? And, and Nicki Minaj is so seldom allowed to be more than just like that curvy woman with the butt, even though she's one of the smartest people working in show business today. And then when she does actually sort of steer into the butt, like, you know, that whole anaconda art mm -hmm. thing, like she came out with her butt featured in a thong, right? From the art for her single Anaconda. And then everyone was like, oh my God, Nicki Minaj, what are you doing? Put that thing away. Right? <laughs> <laughs> How dare you show us the butt that we have been talking about in association with you for literally since you showed up. Because yeah. non-consent is a, it's a critical piece of this, right? Like it's not titillating this in this narrative unless the subject is not consenting. It's so gross. Yeah. Exactly. We want to feel like we're getting one over on her. And I mean, I think Nicki Minaj recording a single about her butt, it would be like me recording a single about the fact that I have an embarrassing Twitter feed. It's just like, look, guys, I know. I know it's there. You know, like, it's, I know that you've heard about this. Let's just get it all out in the open. So are you a train wreck? Speaking of your Twitter feed? I think we all have the potential to be. We all can be. I think that certainly we have a lot of ways to expose ourselves to the public. And if somebody wants to grab onto a narrative about you, um, if somebody wants to make you the villain in their story, we're all constantly providing material for that. I've seen a lot of people do that to you on Twitter. You know, it's it's pretty easy to hit me. It's pretty easy to dislike me because I'm I'm pretty loud and hyperbolic and I swear a lot and make a ton of stupid jokes. But people use ideas about your sexuality and ideas about your mental health. When people come for your, you ideologically, they tend to do it by attempting to discredit you as a train wreck. I feel like I've seen this happen, no? There's a little bit of that because I have been open about the fact that I have bipolar disorder. That's always going to be something that you can find and that you can use specifically as a weapon. There were guys who didn't like what I wrote about rape jokes who, you know, called me crazy. There are guys who don't like what I've written about, you know, the 2016 elections. Obviously, their first thing, and it's a very easy way to discredit a woman, is not she's wrong. You'd have to go through what I said and engage with it to prove right, me wrong. exactly. But to say, well, she's a loony pants, you know, and she's probably about to die or be locked in a mental institution, that instantly establishes whatever I have to say is untrustworthy. And that happens to a ton of women, you know? I mean, yeah, I mean, I've been on, I have my own version of this too. There's a conservative blogger who's no longer allowed on Twitter who um, used to like to call me a promiscuous bisexual freak show. Oh, fun. Which is a total train wreck narrative, right? Which I was yeah. like, thank you. That makes me sound like a good time. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would make that your Twitter bio. If I, I, I actually you know. literally did put that in my Twitter bio for a while. Jacqueline Friedman, promiscuous bisexual freak show. Yeah. Well, I mean, you should ask this guy, like, what was his response to David Bowie? Because if there's ever been a promiscuous bisexual freak show in pop culture, it's him, but he's a man. So as much as people might hate on him, his weirdness allows him to be a fuller and more interesting person. And I mean, you know, for my stuff, there have been a ton of men who've been kind of revered 
for being a little bit wacky. I mean, God knows, you know, what do we say about Kurt Cobain? He was bipolar and, you know, he did not fare well. But his vulnerability and his sensibilities have made him kind of legendary. Um, So, like I said, since I haven't finished your book, I have to ask you what the ending is. Like, what do we do? Like, what's the intervention here? The intervention, I think, um, since we all are in the arena now and since you can be made a train wrecker, I can be made a train wrecker. Any one of us can be. I've had so many friends who've been, you know, chased off the Internet by doxing or harassment is for us to be really conscious of how these narratives are put together and who they serve to not only stop looking to each other as train wrecks and stop taking delight in each other's pain or bad behavior, but to look a little bit more kindly at ourselves to stop worrying as much about whether or not we're likable or whether or not we are appropriately feminine and to start thinking a little bit more about what we have to say. We have unbelievable power to be public in this day and age. The power to leave a public record of your life was historically reserved for the wealthy, for the white, for the famous, for the powerful. Now I can get on Twitter at 3 a.m. and tell you exactly what I'm thinking. And even though I might regret it and there might be people who make me regret it, I have more freedom than I would have had at any other time. Women do. Take advantage of the power we have to make ourselves known and to make ourselves clear and to make our own weirdness and strangeness public and to use that to really challenge the narrative of what a good woman is. When you say care less about being likable or liked and care more about what we have to say, like I feel like that's something you are really good at or it seems like that from the outside anyway and something that I struggle with a lot, you know, just letting go of wanting to be likable and be have people approve. Uh, it's kind of my Achilles heel, I think. Do you have advice for people like me who think that is very wise but sometimes fail in the execution? Well, there's a freedom in it, I think. It's a little bit like the, the answer about sex. You know, no matter who you are and no matter what you want, somebody else wants that. You know, and no matter who you are and no matter what you say, somebody's going to hate what you have to say. Mm -hmm. And they might even hate you. And there's not a lot you can do about that. Because if somebody's really decided to hate you, just trying to make them like you is going to make it worse. But there's always going to be somebody who can hear what you have to say. I go by that as a writer. I go by that as a person. I always try to write with uh, the point of view that somebody out there is my best friend, you know, and I don't know them and they don't know me. But if I say this Clearly enough, they will understand it. And maybe that's going to be five people. Maybe that's going to be five million people. But they are out there. If you're worried about being likable, everybody is unlikable to someone. Some of the most brilliant, accomplished people in our world were personally damaged or had troubled interpersonal relationships or struggled with pain or struggled with loneliness or were just strange. But if you try to stomp out all evidence of strangeness, then you never get a David Bowie. If you can just be who you are as clearly as possible and be as thankful as possible for all the support you get, sooner or later, yeah, the dislike's going to rain down on you. Uh, Not everybody orders the same thing at a restaurant. Not everybody listens to the same albums. Not everybody likes the same people. But the people who need you most are going to be the people who need you for who you are, not for who you're trying to be. Was that very Oprah there? That was beautiful. I can't possibly ask you a follow-up question now because that's obviously where the show needs to end. Sadie Doyle, thank you so much for coming on Unscrewed to talk about Trainwreck. Everyone should go buy it. 
where can people follow you online <laughs> aside from your Twitter account, which is what? It is at Sadie Doyle. And sadly, if you want to keep in touch with me online, you're going to have to come see it. It's a nightmare. You're going you to have a lot of, we'll have a good time. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, you don't have a website or anything else as to Twitter or not Twitter? I have www.sadiedoyle.com. And of course, the book is available wherever fine books are sold. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. And you can reach me at Jacqueline F. That's J-A-C-L-Y-N-F on Twitter. You can tell us what you thought of this episode. Talk to us about train wrecks and train wreck narratives that you want to push back against using the hashtag unscrewed. Uh, and we will chat with you about it. Uh, Sadie and I probably would both love to talk to you about that on Twitter or elsewhere. You can also find me at Jacqueline F on Facebook. You can find me at JacquelineFriedman.com. Friedman is F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N. You can find all the back episodes of this show there, as well as my other work. You can find this fine podcast on iTunes and Stitcher and Acast and wherever you might get your podcasts. While you were at iTunes, please give us five stars. Give us a review. That's how you help other people find the show, and that makes me super happy. This show is produced and edited by yours truly. The in and out music is by The Pink Tiles, and the cover art is by Nicole Dodonna and was produced in collaboration with The Establishment, which also created the sound cues. That's all for this week. Until next week, I'm wishing you safe and happy sex lives. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.